Welcome to the IMDb Journey podcast, where we break down one movie and episode from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and I've never lost a coin toss in my life. You just make it heads I win, tails you lose. It's that simple. And my name is Dean Jeffrey, and I have no idea what the most I've ever lost on a coin toss is. And today we'll be breaking down the Coen Brothers Best Picture winner, No Country for Old Men. Dean, how have you been on this shocking weekend of weather we've had here down in Melbourne, Australia? Melbourne. Um, yeah, no, I've I've been good. Worked as usual yesterday, had today off, watched a uh, couple of movies, which is always fun, but uh, nothing too exciting. What about you? Nothing too exciting at all for me. I was actually supposed to go skydiving yesterday, but weather permitted that I do not do that. So that's a bit of a downer. But Soft. <laughs> spoken from the guy who would have been down on the ground watching me. Yes. But other than that, my holiday was pretty good. Watched a couple of movies, spent a lot of time with the kids, took them out to different places around town. It was overall a fun holiday, but back to work tomorrow. Unlucky. Yeah. If you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you on this journey with us. Please make sure you subscribe to us so you get instant notifications of when new episodes are up. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps, as well as our host site, Spreaker, so thank you to them. And to all listeners new and old out there, we'd love for you to help spread the word about the podcast, chat with your other movie-loving friends, maybe drop in the middle of a convo, hey, there's this great podcast you should check out, IMDb Journey, it's shit hot, get on it. Maybe even leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes to help us move up the charts there for even more people to notice us. We actually did get a couple of reviews this week, Dean. We got one from the Friend Zone podcast. They said, naturally, the place to start for me was Die Hard. These guys do a great job in talking about a film that means so much to us all. Great chemistry between the hosts, and I'm definitely listening to more. Thanks for that, guys. You can, Thank you. You can follow them on Twitter, at Pod. And also from the Bitching About Movies podcast, if you're looking for an entertaining podcast about movies with a cool concept behind it, check these folks out. Thank you. That's Bitching About Movies podcast at Bitching Movies. We also got one from the Ghost of the Stratosphere podcast. They're at Got Stratosphere. Great thorough review of a random classic movie each episode. It really brings forward in just two voices how two people can watch a movie and have different experiences. They really stick to the topic and cover every movie from beginning to end, hitting on all the key points and all the beats of the film. They are really passionate about their viewings of these flicks and they know to look for things the average viewer may not. Lots of great trivia along the way. Good stuff. Oh, stop it, guys. <laughs> We've also got one from our friends at the Movie Pass Podcast at the Movie Pass Pod. Excellent. These guys really plumb the depths of the IMDb Top 250. Definitely worth a listen. Thanks for that, guys. Also at Cinematically Correct Podcast at Cinematically C. These guys are awesome. Although the first episode I caught wasn't a movie I thought I would be interested in, their details and commentary made me feel the need to run out and grab an anime. Who am I? Well said. <laughs> no, thank you, all five of you, for leaving your reviews. We really appreciate it. And if you want to interact with us throughout the week, we're on Twitter as well, at IMDB Journey. I respond to basically everything sent our way, and it's a great way to keep up to date with us as we regularly tweet about what else we've been watching throughout the week. So you can leave your thoughts there too, and we'll read them out on the podcast as well. Give me the update. Any update for us with the IMDB Top 250 list this week? No, I didn't do it. I feel like we're gonna do, I'm going to do it once a month now. It's just it's not enough <laughs> change. Uh, every week to bother going through it. So we'll check it once a month from now on, I reckon. Fair enough. Sounds good to me. As always, uh, we will be full-on spoilers as we start to break down No Country for Old Men. So if you haven't seen it, stop listening, go and check it out, and obviously come back and listen. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So we'll be back on the other side of this break, uh, where we get into No Country for Old Men. I'm Nick. 
And I'm Justin. We are the Epic Film Guys, and we'd like just a moment of your time to talk about an extremely important event coming up this May. Last year, we hosted the live stream for The Cure, a 12-hour live stream fundraiser where we raised $2,500 for the Cancer Research Institute. 86 cents out of every dollar raised goes to research toward finding a cure. And this year, we're aiming to smash that goal, and we need your help to do it. Join us from May 18th through the 20th for 30 hours of amazing live stream content from us and a whole host of amazing podcasters who will be joining us to try to reach $5,000. For more information, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. You go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. So, No Country for Old Men, released in 2007, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, Woody Harrelson, and Kelly McDonald, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Dean, this won four Academy Awards that year, won Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, or Directors in this case, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, and the big one, won Best Picture for 2007. Beating out There Will Be Blood. I know. Nice. What a big one. Another classic. Yeah, it's crazy. Speaking of awards like that, Javier Bardem actually became the first actor to win the Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the BAFTA Awards, the Golden Globe Awards, and the Critics' Choice Awards for his role in this film. Swept it. Yep. Cleaned house that year. And rightly so. Of course, yeah. Of I think course. I think the performance is amazing. Yeah. Spoiler, spoiler alert for our opinions of the, like his character. It's a fantastic <laughs> performance by him. And with an estimated budget of $25 million, it got a worldwide gross of $171 million. I feel like that's pretty good for a Best Picture winner. Yeah, I, reckon I reckon that would be yeah, uh, one of the highest grossing ones, short of, uh, yeah, I got nothing. What are, what's the highest grossing Best Picture winner? Probably Gone with the Wind or something. I'd say Gone with the Wind, actually, if you're talking about inflation. Well, we do love talking about <laughs> inflation here. <laughs> this movie actually had a very tight production on their hands. The, the Coens actually shot about 250,000 feet of film, while most productions shoot between 700 to a million feet, which is... Uh, efficient. Pre- very very efficient. efficient of them. It actually has a lot to do with their work with cinematographer Roger Deakins, because they actually planned out every shot meticulously. Storyboarded it. Yep, mm. and they made sure that every shot they shot was the one they wanted. So, lots of effort into this film, if I do say so myself. A lot of preparation. And this is actually the Coen Brothers' only movie to go over two hours in length. Yeah, which actually surprised me. I sort of, I wouldn't have picked that. I thought these guys, like, I think of like Miller's Crossing in my head, that's a long movie. Yeah. Apparently not. No. And Carter Burwell's score consists of only about 16 minutes of music in this film. The majority of that is in the closing credits. Yep. <laughs> so, there's actually only one scene in the proper movie outside the credits that has any sort of score. And we'll get to that as we go along. We did you know that Heath Ledger had been in talks to play Llewellyn Moss in this? I did I did see that Heath Ledger was in talks for something in this movie. For Llewellyn Moss, was it? Yeah. I didn't realise that. No, he actually withdrew <clears throat> from, from it because he wanted to take some time off instead. Was this... Oh, this would have been just before... Just before The Dark Knight. He came, yeah, he came just back from his the time off to do The Dark Knight. Yeah. And with an average of 8.1 over 710,000 ratings, it's sitting on the IMDb Top 250 list at number 159. So as we all know, last week you bitched out on doing a plot <laughs> summary. 
because we were going through it extra thoroughly, apparently. Well, we had to. Uh, do, you have, do you have an excuse lined up for us this week? No, Kendo? I've got one here. No way. The 1980s rural Texas ex-welder turned hunter Llewellyn Moss stumbles across the remains of several drug runners who have all killed each other in an exchange gone violently wrong. Rather than report the discovery to the police, Moss decides to take the $2 million he finds for himself. This puts the psychopathic killer Anton Chigurh on his trail as he murders every rival, bystander, and even employer in his pursuit of the money. As Moss desperately attempts to keep one step ahead and Chigurh gradually closing in, veteran sheriff Ed Tom Bell oversees the investigation even as he struggles to face the sheer enormity of the crimes he is attempting to thwart. Okay, so let's get into it. All right. First shot. Hit us, Hendo. What'd you think? No, I'll, I'll handball this one to you this this time, Dean, since I, I, I talk about it so much. I actually loved it. And <laughs> since, since doing these podcasts, I've definitely looked out for the opening shots a lot more. Yeah, the the peaceful and beautiful West Texan countryside. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Like, it's it's so calm. It's a new day. The sun is rising over the hills. It's it's primitive. Like, it's a desert almost. Only the toughest survive out here. And you cut that with Tommy Lee Jones's character, Sheriff Bell, narrating over the top about the brutality of man. Yeah. He's talking about executing a guy or standing with a guy who's being executed for killing a 14-year-old girl. And he's saying that it wasn't a crime of passion at all, but he just wanted to kill someone. Yeah, well, this is this is setting up the overriding theme of the film, which is about Sheriff Bell and how he's getting to this point in his life where he can't understand what is happening with the world and the violence that is coming out of these, you know, everyone who's living nowadays and, and how it doesn't match with how he, was, how he grew up. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So now we're introduced to our first real character, Anton Sugar, played, yeah. played expertly, as we've already said, by Javier Bardem. Uh, you what see, an entrance as well. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. It's, so, wow, like holy shit! It's seeing, a dis- seeing, disturbing scene. Seeing this young young cop talk on the phone with this menacing figure just in the background. You can see what he's doing in that unfocused background there. He's too. like he's doing that. He pulls the. He he's not a small guy. Under, yeah. He he gets his handcuffs around under his feet, and he he slowly gets up. He walks over to him and just starts to strangle him. And I mean, it's a brutal scene, but it's so great. To see the handcuffs actually cut through the skin and blood spurt out everywhere. Well, I actually read up that how they did that was that whole thing is like a bodysuit. Because mm. normally when they, in, in movies, when they do scenes like this where they strangle people, yeah. the guy who's getting strangled has the power in, in the scene, in the acting. He's holding on and he's letting he's letting know how much they can strangle him by the, the way he grips it in yeah. this the handcuffs are actually embedded in the fake neck yeah. with the blood patches in the neck. So the cop who was getting strangled had no say about this. This was all Javier Bardem and how much he forced on this. And when you see him pull the, the cuffs into the fake neck and the blood pisses out, whoa, it's like it, if you didn't know anything about that, it yeah. looks so authentic and brutal and real. It's like it's it's horrid to see. It's horrid to see. And the look of insanity on his face as he strangles the cop, the struggle he goes through, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch at a certain point. Mm. It tells us immediately that this guy's a monster. Oh, yeah. And when he finally kills him and lets out this exhale, like he just orgasmed or something, he, the joy, well, the ecstasy, he gets off to it. And like you said, it, it gives us all we need to know that this isn't just going to be some generic villain in this movie. Mm. And that this is an extremely violent and dangerous man. And as we'll see in the next scene, every time he's on the screen, he's going to bring this extreme tension to the screen every time he's on. Shall we talk about that next scene? Before we get to that, I actually watched um, on the Blu-ray extra extra features, special features? Special features. 
on the Blu-ray special features, there was a couple of um, behind-the-scenes things. And, uh, yeah, they went into a lot of detail about this strangling scene and the production designer was saying that they wanted to make this scene the most violent in the movie. Yeah. They wanted to go from the get-go, this is not your normal film. As I said with the prosthetics, yeah, he's wearing this bodysuit and they struggled so much, that the Coen brothers, to stop like either actor from getting harmed in this because these handcuffs are designed to hurt. Yeah. And when when um Javier Bardem's got him on, they were they were actually cutting into his wrist. So yeah, it went it, there was a lot of effort gone into this scene and I think it really really opens up the movie really, really well. Quite a contrast to the very first shot of those calm hillsides mm. and that and then you just cut to this. It's like, okay, what am I what am I watching here? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah, that leads into the next scene with um Anton are we calling Anton or Sugar? I'm calling him Anton. Yeah, I'll go Anton. Yeah. That leads into the next scene with Anton. He's driving the cop car and he pulls this guy over and he slowly gets out. And you really get a great look at him here. He's got this denim jacket on that just stands out. Everyone else has these plaid shirts and leather jackets. Cowboy style. Yeah, everyone else looks like a cowboy. He does not. He's got this denim jacket on. He's got no hat on where we will later see the Sheriff Bell and Llewellyn always have their straw hats on. What did they give his haircut? Did you see that haircut? Did I see the haircut? Yeah, it is so dorky. When they when they presented the haircut to Javier Bardem, his mm. first comment was, oh man, I'm not going to get laid for two months. And oh. the Coen brothers high-fived, like, yes, we've done our job. This guy is a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a super dorky haircut. But I think it just emphasizes that he doesn't belong here. He is... What does the hair tell us about this character? Firstly, it's fantastic because no one else has this hairstyle. And I don't mean in this movie. I just mean anywhere. <laughs> no one life. will be caught dead with this thing. And it makes it iconic to this movie and to this character. Like, if you see a silhouette of this guy with that haircut, you know it's Anton Chigurh. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's not an easy thing to do. But it's such an uncool style that it's it's almost disarming. Like, you don't look at this guy and think he's a psychopath with this dorky haircut he starts talking to this this guy in the car this civilian step out of the car please sir what is that i need you to step out of the car sir he's so calm there's no threat or malice there every movement is deliberate and slow here would you hold still please sir he slowly lines the cattle gun up to his forehead blood just it's unreal like this puff of this mist of uh, blood comes out the back of his head and it just yeah. slowly runs down his forehead. And Anton doesn't bat an eye. It's quite a shot. Like, what a fantastic setup for this character. Yeah, let's talk about him a bit more. Like, this is a guy who is given no origin or backstory throughout this film. Very He's Joker-esque. Pretty much. He's referred to as a phantom or a ghost at times. And throughout the film, he basically kills people with no emotion or remorse. He's basically a personification of death. And the performance here by Javier Bardem, as we've said several times, and what we'll say several times more, is fantastic. Like, he really nails it from beginning to end here and creates one of the most terrifying villains that is ever to grace the screen. Mm. His Best Supporting Performance Actor Award is very well deserved. And actually, it started off three years in a row for supporting actors winning for playing some now infamous villains. You got Javier Bardem as Anton Chigurh. Next up was Heath Ledger as the Joker. And after that was Christoph Waltz as Hans Lander. I mean... They're all fantastic. Exactly. Rate them. What, by performance? Yeah, by performance. By performance. Uh, okay, Christoph Waltz, third. Oh, wow. Um, Javier Bardem, second, and Heath Ledger, first. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree yeah. with that. 
I mean, and even, like, you look at the lineup that Javier Bardem was up against for that year. You got Casey Affleck in The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Charlie Wilson's War, Hal Holbrook in Into the Wild, and Tom Wilkinson in Michael Clayton. I mean, is that just not a slam dunk win right there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, what a soft year. Yeah. Jeez, I love Into the Wild, and I have no idea who would have got a nomination for supporting actor there. Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook. (laughs) Did you actually know they used a nail gun for the sound effect for the cattle gun he uses? No, I did not. Well, you do now. Yes, I do. I love the cattle gun. I think it's so perfect for this character because it shows how he views his victims. These, These people, they're just cattle to him. Like, he has the same amount of remorse killing people as he would for killing cattle. Yep, they're nothing to him. Yeah. What a great scene. I love the segue here between Anton Chigurh's introduction and Llewellyn Moss's introduction. So, the last thing that Anton says is, Will you hold still, please, sir? Bang. Shoots him. Then we cut to Llewellyn. Yep. And he's lining up this deer. He's got him in his sight. And he goes, You hold still. And I I really like that little connection there. Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't right. pick up on that. that no, nice. it's there. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really like it because it does show that these, these characters do have some some similarities. Like, again, here we have a character who's calm, he's precise, he's lining up his sights, he shoots, and it's a terrible shot. Yeah. The deer runs away. So we sort of get the um, the contrast between Anton's precision and Llewellyn's, you know, inaccuracies. So, obviously, then he goes through, he tracks blood, and he eventually winds up upon this uh, group of cars, lots of bodies, lots of flies and all that. And what struck me was how uncaring he seemed by this. Like, it looked like this was not anything surprising at all. Well, he probably looks at it as what it looks like, a Mexican standoff, kind of. He looks in the back and sees all the drugs. He's like, okay, well, I don't, I don't, what do I care about these people? They're, mm. they're bad people. Yeah, but it's here that he finds this guy still alive in the car. And this guy is, he can barely speak, but he's saying repeatedly, you know, agua, agua, which is obviously water in Spanish. And Llewellyn's unfazed. Like, he does not flinch at all. And he says, I'm not, I'm not giving you water. I ain't got no damn agua. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, this guy's bleeding out in front of him and he has zero sympathy for him. He, he even reaches in. He takes a gun, looks back, reaches in, and p- robs him out of his jacket for some <laughs> for some more bullets. And then he goes searching for. Uh, he says, "There's always a last man standing." Yep. And he searches for him, spots him on a tree, does wait a little bit to see, like he times the movement to see if he does does some movement. He does not. So he heads up there and finds the suitcase of the two million dollars. Dean, what would you do in that situation? Okay, having watched. This movie. <laughs> no, honest. I mean, honestly, if I found two million dollars, I would probably take out like a hundred thousand and then return the rest, or just not touch it at all. I feel like if you're going to take out a hundred thousand, you may as well take a lot of it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be touching this. I'd be getting it. You look at the situation you're in. Dead bodies. Yeah, you're probably, a I massive would, truck of coke. But I, I would. I would never approach all of these course, dead bodies. Of course. But if I, if 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 you're walking in the woods, right, and you see two million dollars, you would just walk away. If it was just two million sitting in the woods by itself, huh. with no dead bodies and yep, no yep, yep, yep. drugs hitting, hiding around the area, yep. uh, maybe I would take it. Yeah, I reckon I would take it. I probably. Actually, I might do what you said then. Yeah. If it was like that, then I might like grab grab a bundle, grab a yeah, yeah, grab a bundle. Just, it's, it'll help me out, and it's probably not going to go. You know, ah, they it. won't notice it. Yeah. So you see, when he heads off, they get the thunder in the background, like you've just done some bad shit, Lewin. <laughs> Llewellyn, 
You've just sung... <laughs> what a terrible first name. I know. So do all our Llewellyn listeners out there. <laughs> <laughs> Going to get some hate mail coming in. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> so what do you think about him heading home and then coming back to give him water? Like he had a change of mind. It's, Is this not a stupid, stupid idea? It's so clearly the worst part of this movie. I Maybe just, not part, but it's just the worst decision. Like this decision, it is the worst decision. Yeah. there is no setup for it. As I said before, we see we've seen him interact with this guy who's dying, and he could not care less. He's gone, he's obviously they should gone have home not. and had this moral dilemma. He's sitting in bed, like, oh, I shouldn't have left that guy. But in saying that, he's just stolen all this money. Why are you? Why are you going back for this? If you, maybe if you had not taken the money, maybe there's a little bit of leeway there. But the fact you've taken this money, who knows what's going to be out there now? You've made your decision. Stick with it. Don't head back out there. He knows when he's heading out there, he's probably heading into certain death, like he, when he tells Carla Jean. I don't come back. You tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead, Llewellyn. Well, then I'll tell her myself. That makes no sense. <laughs> it makes zero, zero sense. They should have shown him with some sort of hesitation or remorse yeah. with the guy asking for water in the truck. That would have had some... Se- it would still be a terrible decision, yep. but at least you could understand his motivations here. I just don't understand it at all. And this crap with his mum, as we just heard, he seems surprised that his mother's dead, like like he'd forgotten. Like, what is he doing? Oh, yeah. I guess I'll tell her myself. Like, what is that? Solid point. Solid point. And his wife, Carla Jean, who, by the way, I did not realise was Kelly McDonald until after the movie finished. Oh, really? What a fantastic Texas accent. Well, the British seem to do a lot of good, like... She's Scottish. Well, the... Scottish? People from the The United United Kingdom... Kingdom. (laughs) People from the United Kingdom seem to have a knack for doing these sort of southern accents. Like, look, for example, Tom Hardy in Warrior. I didn't know who Tom Hardy was when I watched Warrior. And when I found out later on that he was a Brit, oh, man, like, that's insane. I couldn't believe it. Look at House. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so she does a great accent, but what the hell is she doing letting him leave like this? Like, that's her husband. He's saying, I might not come back because I'll be dead and seeing my mother. Like, she doesn't look... Is she simple? She doesn't sound like the kind of person who has a say in their... But then you see him before that when they're sitting on the couch and he's telling her to shut up and she's giving it back to him. She does basically everything he says throughout this whole film. No, but the fact that he does go back to this truck, it does show that he's not a perfect person. He obviously makes stupid decisions. We've seen him make several already. So you're basically going to expect him to make more along the way here. Yeah. You can see when he does get there and he does end up getting chased by the Mexicans, there's a nice shot there that's kind of reminiscent to North by Northwest with the, the airplane coming down. And chasing him down the the strip. You know, fair enough. I actually thought that that image, which is a lot, which is on a lot of the No Country for Old Men posters, actually reminded me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, poster with the guy with the oh, chainsaw. Yeah. Like you sort of see the just a black silhouette against the lighter background. And obviously, all these shots are like stunning with the lights and the shadows, and it's everything is done so. so. Oh, I thought you were talking about the gunshots. No, because when they're a freaking mile oh, yeah, when they're a freaking mile away and he moves a centimeter they almost shoot him but, but now, they cannot hit him when he's like five meters in front of it and well, it looks the what like it looks like when they start chasing it's pitch black and by the end of it by the time he's at the river it's daylight well to be fair they could be driving over a lot of bumps how fast can this guy run 
They were driving over a lot of bumpy land. Perhaps maybe it was a bit harder when they get closer. Hmm. I like the attention to detail that they do here when the dog is swimming out of the, the river, coming at him, but he makes sure he blows the water out of his gun before he shoots it. See, hmm. if, that, if it was just a, another regular old generic movie, they probably wouldn't have added that in. Yeah, no, it shows definitely the Coens' attention to detail. And yeah, I mean, they're fantastic directors. And this movie just shows it off so much. None so more than... Excellent! Which is this bloody coin toss scene. I mean, fuck, fuck man. Like, this scene. You, let's, just, let's, let's just talk about it. What's your, what's your favourite thing about this scene? The acting. The acting from both. I would say the writing. That's that, the writing. Both of them in hand in hand. This scene is so famous. I'd forgotten how early on in the movie it was. And when it when it came up, I was like, oh, okay. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be great. And I'm watching I'm like, gee, this back and forth, like these these snide, quirky remarks that um, Anton gives this poor cashier are, are fantastic. Like, it's so cleverly written. And you get so much complexities, like with Anton here. Like, you can see when the, the clerk kind of undermines the mystery of his location at the start, he becomes confrontational straight away. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo. You, yeah. you also pick up that he takes spoken word quite seriously as well. He's not a fan of the small talk, this guy. He's not up for the chit-chat. You don't know what you're talking about, do you, sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about. He hates normal human behavior. He ignores how scared this guy is. Is something wrong? With what? With anything. Is that what you're asking me? Is there something wrong with anything? Will there be anything else? You already asked me that. Uh, well, I need to see about closing now. See about closing? Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now. We close now. No, it's not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark. At dark. He then decides... It's at this point he decides this guy's going to be his next victim. Well, I got to close now. You live in that house out back? Yes, I do. You lived here all your life? This is my wife's father's place uh, originally. <coughs> you married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there in Temple. We come out here about four years ago. You're married into it. That's the way you want to put it. Well, I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. And you know- and, but here's the thing. He could just kill him here, yeah. right? With no theatre and no pizzazz, but he decides to play with him here. He plays this little game with him. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. I think he doesn't... I think it's not so much that he plays with him. I think he, he, he thinks that... Because he believes in fate in chance as well. So that's why he uses this coin. And he does, he flips this coin with people who aren't necessarily in the, in his way. These are like people who could survive. They're, they're just victims. They're not people who basically deserve to die in a way. You notice that when it starts to get a bit more serious, that they, they close in on the clerk and you see the nooses in the background. They get, they, they're even closer now. They're tightening. They're tightening around this guy. Do you notice that? 
I noticed them, but I didn't pick up on the connection. So when he does start to give these people their 50-50 chances, it, it must be because it, like, it also could be that he's taking the guilt off his shoulders as well. Like, he seems to be a guy who's very methodical with his own set of rules and codes, yet he does believe in this fate or destiny. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958. It's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. Probably why he can justify some of the kills, believing that they were meant to happen. I honestly don't think this is someone who needs to justify killing. I think he mind. does in some of these, in some with some of these people who actually have done nothing wrong. Well, what about? Oh, hold on, because this coin flip stuff did confuse me a bit. Just in that, like he talks about fate and destiny a lot, but he only does it twice in the movie, and he kills countless people. And you say, well, these I've- people are, are innocent and have nothing to do with it. Why does he kill the first guy with the yeah, cattle prod? Yeah, I can understand. Well, like the two that would be a qu- like a questionable one there was the first guy with the cattle prod and the guy with the chickens in the truck that you don't see happen, but you, you can yeah. tell that he has. But yeah. So those are the two that are iffy. But then, you know, obviously with um, this guy here and Carla Jean at the end, he does use the coin. So there is... Yeah, it was. I mean, it would have got annoying if he was doing it so yeah. often. But uh, my favourite quote of it was... Look, I'm need to know what I stand to win. Everything. How's that? You stand to win everything, call it. And it's just, it's like Anton takes joy in this interaction, in the man's fear. It's remarkable. Yeah, and you see that once he makes the call and it, it shows that he has survived it, he tells the clerk to put the coin in any other place besides his pocket because this is now his lucky coin. And if he puts it in his pocket, he'll get it lost with all the other coins, basically losing, his, losing its significance. However... Anton kind of contradicts himself here when he says, What will get mixed in with the others and become just a coin? Which it is. You see, the clerk may look at this coin as a thing that has basically dictated his fate, when in reality, it was just chance, and is what Anton reminds the clerk of when he says that the coin is not that special. Yeah, and I saw in an, in an interview with Javier Bardem that he says that Anton uses the coin toss in order to show the other people that their life and death belongs to destiny itself. Yeah. And not to them. Well done. And of course, adding to this amazing scene is the incredible acting by Javier Bardem. He gives off one of the most scary, intense, uncomfortable performances ever. And even from this other actor, do you know the guy's name? No. Who is just the perfect mix of confused and frightened. There's no... Oh, and there's no need for the background score in this either to add any tension oh wow it's funny you say that this is the only scene in the movie that has any background score but you don't even need it like you could cut but it's there oh no what does that say I don't know it's really odd that it's there because you could easily cut that out and this would just be perfect still because all you you need is just this unnerving conversation the the brilliant screenplay and the fantastic acting yeah it's amazing because there's no act of violence here Anton hasn't shown a weapon he's not threatening violence but you can you can get it all in the subtext of what he's saying and even though it's not said specifically it's it's clear as day it's fantastically written and I gotta say Dean you you must have been loving this film since it sits in that niche market of films starring Tommy Lee Jones where the antagonist puts a coin to decide people to decide if people live or die. Yeah. Yeah, you must have been loving that. <laughs> yeah. Anton Two Face Sugar. <laughs> so the scene where we get Sheriff Bell and his offsider inspecting the crime scene. I love this this bit here. Well it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. It really shows that the sheriff knows that this is only the beginning. Like, he's surrounded by multiple dead bodies, 
and a ton of dead animals and broken down trucks. And this, this isn't something he's used to, I'd imagine. Yeah, but it's so weird because he seems, at this point, almost unfazed by it. He comes across as this really seasoned sheriff that who's seen a thing or two. And it's almost like he knows what to expect, even though, because I hear what you're saying, like, this is this is the whole the whole sort of crux of the movie is that this sheriff is is getting too old for the country that he's living in now because it's getting more and more violent. But compared to this younger officer who's so wide-eyed about it all, throwing around these theories, the sheriff is, like, laughing. I think it's because he's he's kind of over it. He's like, uh, like, whatever, this is, this is how it is now, and... And I'm not used to this. I, I'm just, I'm done with it. I'm just, I'm just doing my job here. I, I don't really, ex- he doesn't really, does he really expect to solve this? I mean, he's hunting Anton. Yeah, but from what he's seen so far, do you really think he's going to, like, him and his ways now going to be like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to solve this. Let's just right, So are you the- saying you don't think he, he cares? Not so much cares. It's just so much that he doesn't, I don't think he is in it anymore. I think he's just doing his. Checked out yeah. a bit. Whereas the the young cop, this is like new and exciting for him. He's yeah. he's an up and coming. He's like, yeah, let's get into it. Yep. Oh, good point. Okay. So when Anton goes and inspects Llewellyn's trailer, he he has a look around and he can see that they're gone, obviously. And he sits down to drink this milk. Yeah. And he looks in the reflection the TV. of the TV, and you can see his silhouette. And it's funny because. In a scene coming up, the Sheriff Bell goes to Llewellyn's trailer and does the exact same thing. Yeah. He sits down, gets a glass of milk, and looks at himself in the TV. And you can see the silhouettes are almost identical, except for this bloody great big sheriff, well, not sheriff, cowboy hat he has on. Yeah, and I think that obviously has to do something with good versus evil here. Like, you've got the epitome of good here with Sheriff Bell, and basically the epitome of evil with Anton. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many other shots coming up as well that do the same thing. Like, for example, let's just throw one out now. When Anton walks into the trailer, you almost get the same shot when Sheriff Bell walks into the crime scene later on. It's almost like for like there as well. And mm. there are a couple other things along the way that sort of contrast these two sides of you know, good versus evil. Mm. Just quickly, another Anton scene. I love it when he goes to see this park manager. <laughs> Because we've just seen him basically kill every single person he's come into contact with. So he sees this woman and he's trying to find out where does he work. Yeah. And he asks her three times and each time is completely different. And yeah. the last one is the friendliest. It's yeah. so off-putting. He start, yeah, he starts off with a normal speaking voice. Where does he work? And then when she doesn't give him the response he wants, he goes to this more very menacing tone. Yeah. Where does he work? And when she says no again, he does go to this friendly you know, request. Where does it work? And that's fucking scary. Like. Yeah, and it plays it plays with us as viewers as well because we're fully expecting him to kill her now. Yeah. So when he just smiles and leaves, it's it's I like feel- a, a relief for the viewer, like a. <sighs> But I feel like that is because that she sticks to her guns. She doesn't give him the information. She has a she has her own moral code, and he respects that. He is all about moral codes, and the fact that she sticks to hers, he respects that, and he lets her live. I just want to quickly bring up the quick little scene there where Anton is driving past and he shoots the crow. But he misses. But he still attempts to shoot the crow. And crows have been known to be symbols of death. So to see him nonchalantly try to kill this symbol of death shows his authority over death, I reckon. It's a stretch. It's a stretch, it's but a stretch. There's, there, there, it could be interpreted that way. That's that's this film. It like, could be interpreted that there's way. There's so many and different interpretations now. for this film. Yeah, no, nah, nah, there is. There's a lot to it. And that's you know the beauty of cinema, isn't it? Exactly. We do get a lot of 
uh, scenes of Sheriff Bell sitting in diners and cafes throughout the man this film. loves to sit. He loves to sit down with a coffee and a newspaper. So I just want to talk about the complexities of this Sheriff Bell. He's he's confronted throughout the film with this feeling of, I'd say, confusion and loss when trying to understand Anton. He even faces this uh, existential crisis towards the end of the film when he feels outmatched and exhausted. Mm. Like he's, he's used to an older world where there are morals and people did the right thing. And Anton and Llewellyn change this perspective for him. And by the end of the film, he realizes the absurdity of the world he lives in now and remains shaken by it. See, the, it doesn't take a genius to, to realize that the title of this film, No Country for Old Men, is referring to Sheriff Bell as the old man and the country he's living in now is not for him. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, yeah you're obviously right. And that is, you know, a through this movie. But I don't know. What did you think of the Sheriff Bell character? Because I found him a little dry. Tommy Lee Jones does feel like a dry kind of person in real life, actually. Even, oh, yeah. He, he, from what I hear, he's a very grumpy person in real life. But even there was this one scene where he's sitting with this, this younger guy at the table and they, he talks about something real disgusting and the young guy like laughs and then realises he's laughed in front of the sheriff and like catches himself and stops. And Tommy Lee Jones just deadpan as ever, as ever, as ever, looks over to him and you think he's about to get told off and he goes... It's all right, I laugh myself sometimes. No, you don't. <laughs> There's no way you've ever laughed. <laughs> going back to the music here, so we, we say that there's... What music? There's, exactly. There's really no score going, but there's obviously a lot of sounds that they use because the sounds, the score in thrillers and horrors and stuff, they tell the audience when to be scared, when to be safe, you know, what to expect. Yeah, which I find... Like, that's that's a flaw in films like that. If you can feel for yourself without something making you do it, that's the mark of a great yeah, film. It's incredible. Yeah. And one thing I love, what's one sound I loved hearing in this movie was that, that, that tracker that oh where he's driving, God. just all of a sudden, it's, and you're like, what's that? Because they mentioned it before, and they give it to him, and it's like, it hasn't made a sound, no. And you're like, oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, and that and first then all beep. beep and you're like, oh god, yeah. And then he drives past, and beep, 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 that beep, visual, beep, 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 beep. Yep. And the like, point of view when he's driving oh. along, and it gets and it gets faster yeah. and slower, and oh, holy shit, that's just it gets you shivers. That is yeah, so nah, it's like it's, it's fantastic. Just going back a little bit, I love there is some, there is some humor in this film as well, and I love the conversation that Llewellyn has with the guy at the camping place when he says, tent poles. Mm-hmm. You already have the tent. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Well, you give me the model number on the tent, I can order you the poles. Uh, never mind, I want a tent. Well, what kind of tent? Kind with most poles. Oh, yeah. Well, what kind of tent? Like, just give me the tent. It's like, well, which one? The one with the most poles. Like, just, <laughs> just, he just deadpans. Oh, if you've got a tent without poles, I can order these poles in for it. No, I just want... All right, I'll buy a tent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some good comedy in this film as well. It's kind of to break that tension sometimes, which it needs. It, like it, I feel like it was a good laugh there and, and a couple others coming up too. But not in this scene we're talking about now with the first kind of shootout, I guess. This... Yeah. Man, this, this scene... Like, I know I've already said my favourite scene of the film, but there is so many scenes in this film I, that would outshine any other scenes in any other movie. There's so many. Just because the, the earlier one is my favourite scene doesn't detract from any of these scenes coming up. Again, with this scene, it's, oh, it's just, fantastic. Just say, just say, it's not as good as the other scene. Going back That's and okay. forth between Llewellyn and Anton, the silence is used perfect here as we get close-ups of Anton's socks walking outside towards the door, the muffler on that shotgun. It's actually not a... Uh, it's not a shotgun. It's a bolt gun. I didn't realize that. Bolt gun? Yeah, it's a bolt gun. What do you mean? 
It's a shotgun. No, it's a bolt gun. What's a bolt gun? It's used to stun cattle. No, that's what he uses to that's punch to, the locks out. That's to kill the cattle. He puts that in their brain and kills them. Yeah. This is to stun the cattle. Okay. He has the thing that kills a man, right? It's a it's a bolt that goes and back in, okay? Which is what he uses when he... I thought they were two different things. No, when he hits the locks through the door. He uses the same thing. It's Sorry, this, I'm not... I'm this not rod a, shoots out, this rod comes back in. I'm not... I don't right? have my Which degree what, in farming and cowboyness. So, <laughs> forgive me if I didn't know no, the but difference. This, this, this is a shotgun with yeah, a okay, gigantic fuck-off suppressor on it. And this actually didn't exist. No. <laughs> right? It was... The, someone did make it uh, in 2014, but at the time that this film was made, this, this did not exist. It looks so intimidating. It's like something from a sci-fi movie, and like a sound. rail gun. The oh, sound. The, se- the sound is so good. It's fantastic. And like it's it's so bloody. Like he goes in the door, he shoots this guy. And it looks like his his hand gets blown off, and then he sort it's of rolls brutal. over. Yeah. He hits him, and he flies across the room. Yeah. Like it's not comical, obviously, but it's so violent. But not in an overindulgent way. No. Like it's if like yeah, okay, this is real. This is how it would look if yeah. something like this happened. You can also see here that Anton doesn't like blood as well. You can see when he, he covers the curtain on the guy to, to kill him, yep. he takes his socks off afterwards because he's got blood on him. And even in the very first scene where you see him kill the cop, right, when the blood splurts out, he rolls away yes. from it. Yeah. Right? He, de- he deliberately makes a point of rolling away from it. And, yeah, the, his- and even coming up when he kills... What do you, what do you have Carson on? Wells? When he kills Carson, you see when he's on the phone straight after, he sees the blood coming to his feet and he puts his feet up on the bed. Yeah. He tries to avoid it at all costs. Obviously, you know, it's going to create some mess on his shoes, but I think there's a little bit more to it. No, nah, there's three or four scenes here where this is an issue, and it really pays off in a scene coming up towards the end, which we'll get to. Yes, yes, of course. I know what you're talking about. But yeah, like, even net, like he shoots, like, the door to the bathroom's closed. He just shoots through the wall. Yep. Um, he bursts through, and then he shoots through this curtain, as you say. Like, he's he has no problem in killing people through barriers. Yeah. Like, it's, it's really... um. It sets up another scene coming up really well after seeing this, so... Yeah, well, let's just talk about it now then, shall we? All right, so we get Llewellyn staying. He goes to a new hotel now. Obviously, the old one's compromised. He's laying in bed again, as we've seen him previously, and he's just he says out loud, There just ain't no way. And this is in reference to how the Mexicans and Anton yeah, were found- both there yeah. waiting for him with the money. So he starts going through his case and he finds a tracker. And he puts it on the bench and he realises that even where he is now, people are coming. People know about it. And this scene is my... Excellent! Nice. Quality scene, I reckon, for yeah. that pick. It's funny. I was watching the movie and I had the coin flip scene as my favourite scene. I was like, yeah, I'm not sure anything could top this. I was on the edge of my seat watching this. It's this done. Is, it's so perfect. It, this is just... This is incredible filmmaking. So he, he realises that people can find him. He hears noises in the hall. He calls reception. No answer. But you can, you can hear, hear, hear it. Yeah, you can hear the phone ringing downstairs. And so he knows. He, like it, he goes to the door and puts his face up against it. Now, knowing what we know, as I just yeah. said, that Anton's love of shooting through locks and shooting through walls and doors. I'm thinking, Jesus, Don't like, do that. <laughs> stop it! <laughs> You're freaking me out, man. Yeah, the, te- the tension is immense. Llewellyn sits on the bed and waits with the gun pointed at the door. Turns the light off. Turns the light off, that's right. And then we see someone stop the, the, the foot marks, I guess. The no, fo- you hear the beeping. Oh, I didn't hear the beeping. Yeah, definitely 
I can check it, but I'm pretty sure you hear beeping. No, you said definitely. I do love the Hendo certainty here. I did not hear the beeping. Um, Shall we you've... check? No, no, no. Shall we get that Let's elevator music playing? Let's Shall we get that elevator? <laughs> Um, anyway, so we see, we see someone stop on the other side of the door with the light there and Llewellyn slowly and quietly, you just hear that, that of the shotgun and the feet walk away and you're like, oh, okay. Then the light turns on and you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I I swear when I saw that one, ah, and and there's just silence. Yeah. You just shoot yourself. At that that point, why did you fucking move? Like you're sitting in front of the door. You know, someone's coming. Someone can just shoot through the door. Right in the corner. Anyway, he's, he just pure silence. Then bang, the lock gets shot through. No, before that, the camera pans up to the lock. Sorry, I forgot to mention the camera movement in this scene. Well, yeah, it makes no, a difference. Go. If it cut to just the lock, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same effect. You see the look from the bottom of the door pan up to the door lock, and that's when you know it's... And, and In the middle of you thinking this is what's going to happen, it happens mm. out of nowhere. Hits him Out of chest. nowhere, in the middle of you thinking it, it happens. Yeah, it's it doesn't amazing. give you an opportunity to process it, and it happens. <laughs> uh, anyway, so it hits that'd, him. That'd have fucking hurt as well, hitting him in the chest like yeah, that. Because at the back of the trailer, it makes a dent in the wall from the yeah, other side of the trailer. That would hurt. Um, so, Llewellyn fires a shotgun and runs to the window. Anton fires his suppressed shotgun, narrowly missing Whoa. Llewellyn. As he drops to the ground outside, Llewellyn's been shot in the side, blood's pouring out. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, this scene goes on, but that bit right there is definitely my favourite part of this movie. Yeah, completely it, understandable. Like, and it doesn't stop. Like, no, it keeps going. This scene goes he, run, he runs onto the road, stops this, this truck and jumps in. <laughs> he starts by saying to this guy, don't worry, I won't hurt you. <laughs> He's gone. That's it. Dead. It's through, the, through the throat. Yeah. Blood spurts out everywhere. The truck's getting fired at again and again and again. Anton is unrelenting. We can't see him. I was going to say, yeah, you know, you can't, you don't we see him. We have not seen him yet. It is fantastic. I mean, but in all fairness, Anton, shoot the tires, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> they did it earlier on. The Mexican shot out his tires at the top. Why couldn't he just take out a tire? Uh, but no, no you're, you're right. It's, you it's, it's you fantastic. You just feel his presence. You, you feel the desperation and fear of Llewellyn. Speaking of not seeing him, do you, do you know that none of the three leads actually see each other face to face in this film? They never encounter each other. There is some phone conversations, but there is never a face-to-face between any of them. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely unusual. In yeah. every like, the hero and the villain, they never come into contact. It's it's very unorthodox. I agree. And if if you don't get any more about Anton's personality or his character, to be so fucking brazen as to just cruise on up to the car like that after he crashes, just walks on up with the gun hanging down. No, I was thinking, like, this car doesn't care. He's just. Yeah. Like, if it was some other bloke, he would have his gun up, ready to go, yeah. hiding behind cars. No, he just cruises on up. No no, no care. Whatever. And, and again, for about the third or fourth time, we see we see the blood trails on the on the floor again. So, yeah. we see Anton see Llewellyn's blood trail. Then he runs off. Yes. Llewellyn yeah. flies, blah, blah, blah. Llewellyn runs over to Anton. And again, we see the blood trail. It's all about blood trails. It really is. This scene is amazing. And again, going back to that humor, I did find it funny when Llewellyn is crossing the border and he comes into contact with these three young kids and he gets the he gets the coat off the guy and then when he says with a beer too how much Brian give him the beer 
<laughs> but he, he gives him that that look like motherfucker give me that fucking beer <laughs> freaks the kids out and I like those attention to details again as well the reason why he gets that beer is because he wants to cross back cross over and make it look like he's a drunk he's got the coat mm. hanging over the beer That's it all makes perfect sense I also did like the funny scene coming up when the Mexicans are singing to him he, op- he, he, he lays back and all the blood comes out and it you know the music stops it's like That's oh so weird what is that saying the Mexicans are singing Listen, listen. Translated to English, it means you wanted to fly without wings, you wanted to touch the sky, you wanted too much wealth, you wanted to play with fire. That's what that meant. Very much in line with the the movie, with what Llewellyn is going through. See, all those Spanish and English-speaking listeners would have got a real kick out of that. Same with the Japanese listeners last week. (laughs) (laughs) Two can play a different dialect, my friend. At least we got subtitles last week. (laughs) There's a bit of a difference there. Yeah, good point, good point. Oh, you didn't watch the subtitles? I bet the subtitles would say Mexican singing. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the scene showing now with Anton blowing up the car to steal the medical supplies while everyone's distracted, there is some really good-looking shots in this one. Like from when he's walking up, they have the, the, the point-of-view shot of the fuel tank and you see him, the, him walking up with the leg comes straight into focus of the injuries he's taken. Mm. So you can see why he's limping at that point. You also see how when he walks into the pharmacist and the explosion happens, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't. He doesn't blink. He doesn't jump. Very uh, Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight. No, oh come on! With he the definitely flinches. He definitely flinches when the bombs finally go off. He doesn't turn around though. He's Am looking. Right? At, he's looking at it already. You, have you seen the Dark Knight? A couple times. <laughs> Who was it? Was it Batman? You know that guy. <laughs> and then we go through this whole method of him fixing his leg. In the motel room, which is fantastic. There's no dialogue needed. It's just a little bit of background noise on the TV. They really get which up he turns close off. on at the end when he's done. Whoa, they really down. get up close to the wounds, the, like yeah, the needles. God, it's not your favourite scene. <laughs> Don't be so it's defensive. <laughs> hey, a lot of these are, are fantastic. I'll I'll defend this movie for a long time. <laughs> you don't need to. I love it. <laughs> you can also see how. Even when he does, like, even when he fixes his own leg, he still barely flinches. Like he's done this yeah. a lot of times before as well. I mean, I think it goes in line with his lack of emotion he generally shows throughout the movie. He also doesn't show the emotion of pain. Like, yeah. th- gee, this 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 medical healing is so is so well done though. Yeah. It shows like it's precise. His, it's very precise. A lot of a lot of other um, movies or directors would have gone with a much simpler, you know, clean it. Wrap it, you're fine. But no, they show injecting around the wound for infection. Other movies probably wouldn't even show it. They just go to the next scene. He's got a bandage around his leg. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, it's very good. Good. I just really love this quote from when Anton finds uh, Woody Harrelson's Wells, and he's about to kill him, and they're having this bizarre conversation about um, about fate and destiny again, about what's what's going to happen and whether people can avoid it and change their outcome, but. <laughs> Wells is just bewildered by this character, this person who obviously looks human, but is far from it. And yeah. he, he says to him, Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. And it just, it really reinforces how insane, not that we really need it at this point, but it does really re- reinforce how insane that uh, Anton Sugar is. I do actually like this whole scene as well, like the back and forth between these two, these two assassins. Yeah, these, I mean, they're both killers. Yeah, and you can see the the look on Wells' face. It, it's 
he's pretty sure he's not going to get out of this. He's, yeah. he's bargaining. He's doing what he can. I know where the case is. But he's, he's already just told um, Llewellyn that you can't bargain with this man. Yeah, but he's going to He'll kill anyway. you just for inconveniencing yeah. you. Like, he, know, he knows what's coming. He also says as well, You don't have to do this. Which obviously annoys Anton because it happens later on with Carla Jean. He's like, why do people say that? Yeah. Why do they say that? Yeah. Can't, why can't you just accept what's happening? Yeah. And that's where you... Like, in this scene, you see it through his facial expressions and he actually mentions it later on. Why? You don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. What do they say? They say, you don't have to do this. Yeah, so it's a really good, well-shot scene by the Coen brothers as well. I did like the scene between Anton and... Do we know his name? The guy from Office Space. This drug boss guy who's obviously hired him. Don't steal his stapler. <sighs> oh dear. <laughs> um, the thing I liked about this scene is that it answered the plot hole and the issue I had from earlier where Anton goes to find the money with his transponder and the Mexicans are already there. Like, how the hell do the Mexicans know where to go? Yeah. And it's answered here where this drug boss says, I want to spread my resources and I gave the Mexicans a transponder as well, which Anton obviously does not take too kindly to. No. I also like the banter that he has with the accountant as well. You can see this guy survives the wrath of Anton because he's a humble guy. He uses What? I think he survives. Oh, no way. Are you serious? He does. He goes, are you going to kill me? He goes, that depends. Did you see me? And that's the end. Of course he's going to say, no, I didn't see you. You don't think he saw him? The, the, The notion of a ghost... He says, you didn't see me. Like, And then at the end, when he's with the kids, he's like, here, here's the money, you didn't see me. He, he just wants to not be seen. So when he says, the reason why I think that he doesn't kill this guy is because compared to the, the store clerk, who is that, he does that natural human talk the way he does, and he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. Like, he just doesn't like that casual chit-chat. This guy is very proper. He uses good terminology. He's respectful of the spoken word. So he doesn't even he doesn't even decide to give him this guy a 50-50 shot. He just goes, you didn't see me. And that's what, I reckon that's where it is. I don't think he kills this guy. I think he does. I don't think he does. I think he does. And do you want to hear my reasoning? Because he kills everyone. He doesn't kill everyone. He kills the chicken man. I don't think he kills this guy. Why would he let's, save this guy? Let's put the poll out for Twitter. Less. Does Sugar kill the accountant? Yes or no? Let's put that in the, the poll this week. I he, think he definitely does because he it sets up later where we don't see him kill someone and we ask that question as well. But we get that answered. He he tells him to take the chicken coops out that of the truck. That answers this goes, as well. No, it doesn't. There's no, there's no resolution to this. You don't see him walking out like at the end when he, he, he checks his feet for blood. There's no leaving for him here. This is the end of the scene. Every other, every other point you know if he's killed this person or not. He either leaves them or you see him afterwards doing something that would indicate that he has killed them. There's nothing here that show that to indicate that he does kill this person. I'm going to win this Twitter poll. He kills them. I don't need to argue and make up stupid things like you are. It's pretty clear this guy loves we'll to We'll let the kill. listeners decide. Oh, okay, Did yeah. Chigurh kill the accountant? <laughs> yes or no? So I want to get to basic... Oh, I guess you might even call it a plot twist in the movie that Llewellyn is actually killed... Earlier, like much earlier than the end of the film, which a is plot twist. Well, if it's anything, a plot point. Yeah, All right, Twitter enough. poll. Is this a <laughs> plot twist or no, a plot I'll, point? I'll concede. I'll concede to that one. It doesn't have to be <laughs> a plot twist. So, but you can see that by killing Llewellyn off screen as well, we're still roughly another twenty minutes left. The film is trying to tell us that the plot that we've got here isn't important and nor was it ever really because rather than this being this cat and mouse thriller no country for old men is actually a coming of age tale in which the real protagonist 
who is Sheriff Bell, comes to understand his place in the universe. Loon was never really the hero of this story, and that was shown several times when he decided to do the wrong thing and take the money, and again, when Anton offers him to spare his, li- spare his wife's life, he takes the selfish option and decides to go after him instead. You could say that Anton is sort of a grim reaper coming to punish him for his transgressions. Did you find it odd where we see the sheriff, we see Sheriff Bell driving up and he sees the carload of Mexicans, he hears a gunfire and then sees the carload of Mexicans driving off and doesn't chase them? No, because I don't think it's in his nature nature to pursue this. He's he a lawman. Just, but again, he's he's basically I'm over this shit. I'm not going to go follow these three or four machine gun toting Mexicans. It's not even he, he's in Mexico. This isn't his <laughs> jurisdiction. He's just trying to he's trying to find Llewellyn to be there. And when he hears that, he he goes in to see what happened. Yeah, this this Llewellyn death is shocking. It's so it yeah it just subverts everything you expect from a movie. If you were going to expect him to die, you would have expected it from Anton, and then and you'd expect to, to see, it. see it. Yeah, but again, it's showing that this this is not what the the point of the movie is. That's right. And the problem is that you sort of watch this film and think, oh, this is the story of Llewellyn, but it's not at all. No, it's the story of Sheriff Bell. And that's what you get with this the the final twenty minutes is basically it turns into his complexities. It turns into his story, mm. and you get this once again great scene coming up with Sheriff Bell going back to the crime scene afterwards, pitch black, and he sees on the door that the lock has come out, has shot through, yeah. And you're like, oh boy. And we see Anton inside the shadows. You see the that perfect shot of looking on the rim of the door lock, and you can see someone in there. Yeah. And again, through Anton's point of view, you can see Sheriff Bell on the outside. Yeah. And it's, again, no score. It's silent. And it's so And he's deciding what to do. And you you don't know this man as a hero or someone brave, clearly, throughout this movie. He hasn't shown any of that. No. And you're legitimately unsure of what he's going to do here. So when he, he makes a decision to go in, and there's no one there. Now, what do you interpret that as? Now, I actually interpret it that Anton was never in there. Okay. All right. I interpret that as he's imagining this this demon that he's been chasing as being in there, and he's got to decide whether to overcome his fear and deal with this new world or not. And in the end, he he, he decides to go in. I agree, but I think that Anton was there, but he's not there anymore. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, he was there because the lock's been shot through. I just don't. And and the oh, we, what we haven't even talked about the briefcase going into the the air ducts all this time as well, which was brilliant in all those different forms they did it. And you can see it here as well that the air duct has been taken off by the coin. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you that him seeing the the door lock punched out, he knows that yeah. that's from him. Yeah. And, and Anton and it, and it has is, been and it is there. Him overcoming his fear. He's just not there now. Yeah, and and the shot of Anton at the door is his image, like his thought of what is behind that yeah. door. And I've I've read a lot of interpretations that are, are certain that when he when he walks in, turns the light on, goes into the bathroom, he's hiding behind the no, door. No, I don't but what? Yeah, I don't but agree with that. There's no at all. way. I don't see that at all. No. He's not there. So now we get the scene with Carla Jean going into the house and Anton's waiting for her. Sitting in the shadows and we go through this whole coin tossing which we've already talked about. Fantastic just... acting. Fantastic acting I must say. From both. Once again, there's my input. Play on, Dean. Thank you for that insightful and riveting Fantastic input. acting. Did I say it was fantastic? Mm. I just want to go on a little tangent here. Go for it. we got so, time. <laughs> first time I saw this movie was with my wife when she was my girlfriend. 
And we went to the town of Sorrento. We picked out a random time and we sat down, ready to see this movie. And out of nowhere, this guy gets up the front and starts talking about this film club that we're all in, apparently. And me and Britt are sitting there. We look at each other like, what have we just walked into? And apparently every week at this time, this massive film group fill this cinema. And I did think it was unusually busy. They fill this cinema. They talk about the movie beforehand. And then afterwards, they have tea, coffee, and biscuits and talk about it again. And we just sat there like, uh-oh. What did you get some good pointers? What have we walked? I mean, we left straight away. Oh. But they were just like, all right, um, what do we know about this movie here, guys? Give us some good tips. And I'll just sit like, <laughs> Anyway, so the reason I bring that up is because I was thinking about the first time I saw this movie. Because I think, actually, this is only the second time I've seen it. I think this is the third. Yeah, so I was, I was getting very lost at this point. Um, now or the first time? No, 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 not now. Okay. The first time when I watched it and we had, from the point where Llewellyn is dead, I was getting lost as to who was doing what, like who killed him and what was happening. And this scene here, I, I had no idea like if if he'd killed Carla Jean or not. Yeah. And it's only on this rewatch where you're looking at these things and it's so obvious that he did now. Yeah. Like he walks out and he clearly makes a point of checking his shoe for blood. Obviously, he's killed her, and it's just it's stuff like this that I really enjoy on rewatches, where you pick up on these little things that the the people making this film has obviously made a conscious decision to put in, and it's part of the story and part of the storytelling, and it's just so nice to get rewarded for you know an in depth rewatch I've found. Well, actually, in the book that this is based off, it's there's no bones about it. He does kill her. Like it's very straightforward that he does kill her in the book. Mm. So I agree with you. I like how they left it a little ambiguous, but if you're paying attention, yeah. You know, you know that has happened. And there is bones about it in the next scene, sticking out of his arm. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna put no, it. <laughs> yeah. So you get this this classic. You see someone driving from, you know, the passenger seat. Oh, what's the side on view called? Side view. No. We'll go with side view. Okay, we'll go with side view. You get that side view, and you just. You can always tell it's coming. Like you, whenever, whenever I see a movie and you get this side view of someone just driving, yep. and you see traffic lights, whether they're red or green, but usually you see the car coming on the other side. Yeah, you see it. Yeah, from the other side. This one, it comes from behind you. Yeah, and hits the passenger side. It's Get yeah, It's great. Yeah, I also like the the karma here of how he nearly dies from this random occurrence, this fate, I guess. Mm. And yeah, deviating from the norm of most other films. He gets away. This is the last scene we see of him. Mm. And, you know, I think it's fantastic. It's so rare where the bad guy gets away and not in some bullshit set up for a sequel. No, of course not. There's never going to be a follow-up movie and there was never going to, obviously. And the story is saying this... This This is what happened. This guy gets away. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because I've seen that people... Some people got confused, by, like got confused, but they hate it. Like, oh, this is the, the 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 good guy dies and the bad guy gets away. This is this is shit. I'm like, what? It's amazing. Different does not mean shit. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of different, we have our final scene of the film here, and it's the dreams. It is the from epic Pal. conclusion to this film. What do you think these dreams mean, Dean? All right, let's go through them. All two of them. All two of them. It's funny, though, he does say that dreams are never interesting to anyone except the person dreaming it, which I find to be very, very true. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so the first dream, he's meeting his father in town. Oh, before he says this, actually, he talks about how 
He's 20 years older than his father ever ever was. Yeah. So he's the old man yeah. here. Yeah. Which is, you know, I did pick it's, up on that. it's interesting to think when you you live longer than your your father that you do, you know, you get yeah. older than them. Anyway, so the first dream, he meets his father in town to get money. He thinks he's lost this money. That's all he remembers. See, I think that this is showing us because this whole there's been a lot of uh, there's been a big thing about of money. This whole thing how, how it plays like Llewellyn yeah, everyone's makes his decision based on money. It's money, money, money. Yep. And I feel like, <laughs> yeah, money seems to be the thing that holds this plot together at the start. However, as it moves forward, we see that money starts to lack value for these characters. And it's shown right here in this dream where he talks about what you just said. Yet when he finishes the dream, he immediately moves on to the next one. He brushes off this first dream as insignificant because, you know, the presence of money is lacking importance anymore. It's got no, it's it's nothing now. He let's move on to the more important dream. Hmm. That's interesting. I would say that as you say, the whole movie all these characters have been chasing money and all these people are now all either dead yes. or morally empty, as in the case of Sugar, except Bell, who does not care for the money. He's never chasing the money in this movie. He is chasing a killer. He's chasing a criminal and he's never going for the money. So as you say, it's not an important dream for him. He thinks he's lost this money. He's going to meet his no dad. No big deal. Yeah. Yep. Then we get our second dream, and it's set back in older times. He was on horseback going through the past. It was cold and snowy. His father rode past and kept going. His father was wrapped in a blanket holding a fire in a horn. He knew he was going on ahead to make fire in the cold and the dark. And he says, I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. So it's obviously here that his father is carrying the promise of fire up ahead. He's carrying this warmth and security. Now, his father's obviously dead, and this is where Sheriff Bell is going to end up. Yeah. Like, he's he's on a path now. He's retired. And he's okay with it. Yeah, he's yeah. there. There's no... He's complacent. He's he's in the next part of his life, and he's, he's fine. Yeah, the time has passed him. And the world, and the country that he once knew. The country. The no country. For old men. <laughs> oh! <laughs> You like that? Yeah. (laughs) Any last words? Well, that was a fitting end to the novel we just read. (laughs) Dean, what are your final thoughts on No Country for Old Men? Uh, I came a little more prepared this week than I did last week. No Country for Old Men is undoubtedly a fantastic film. A worthy winner of Best Picture, which is obviously not always the case. The Coens have taken the Western genre and turned it on its head, subverting all expectations we have. The hero dies three quarters of the way through, without the audience seeing a great shootout or anything epic. The villain walks away, getting away with his crimes again. The sheriff is depressed and weary, sad that this country he knows and loved has changed, and that he doesn't fit in anymore. And that's it. That's the movie. The lack of a score, as we've, as we've talked about, through most of this movie, takes away the phoniness of hearing music that the characters can't hear. They don't need chilling music to increase tension here because the lack of a score, for the most part, makes it feel real. Like my favourite scene. It's dead of night and the two guys are chasing each other. The only sounds you hear are the sounds of their guns blasting, their footsteps, their quickened breathing. It's very effective. The only real negative thing I can say about it is that the Sheriff Bell scenes, for the most part, are a bit boring. And I understand that his character is obviously essential to relaying the key themes of this movie, but I did find myself getting bored with a few of his scenes. Also, I've only seen this movie once before, 
and now twice. And whilst it's amazing, it's certainly not one I'm going to rush out to watch again anytime soon. It doesn't have the rewatchability for me that my all-time favorite movies do have here, which is why... I'm actually going to lower it from five stars for me down to four and a half. Because I went to uh, log it in to my letterbox and it came up with five star and I thought, no, that's not right. It's four and a half. Okay. Here we go. What have you got for us, Hendo? All right. So going back to watch this film, I learned two things. One, I haven't actually seen a lot of Coen Brothers films. (laughs) Two, what the fuck is wrong with me? Because this film is superb. It's probably their best. The Coen brothers really have created a great movie here. The acting is fantastic. It's no surprise that Javier Bardem won Best Supporting Actor for his role as Anton Chigurh. The movie is also visually fantastic with some stunning work from the genius Roger Deakins, as well as the story being told through wonderful long shots, scenes with little to no dialogue, and a lack of soundtrack. Every bit of dialogue in this film, even if it may seem unnecessary, has some meaning or pushes the plot forward. However, some people seem to take the film for face value, and if you do that, this may not be a satisfying film for you, but sometimes great movies have to be viewed in that there is meaning in almost every shot and scene. And that's what we try to do here when we go back and watch these films. Most moviegoers enjoy movies for the laughs, the action, or for the simple reason to escape the real world for one or two hours. No Country for Old Men forces its viewers to go beyond these simple pleasures and see the grit of the world around us. There aren't always happy endings, and people are confronted with serious existential questions. Most films wrap up satisfyingly, with the good guy confronting the bad guy, bad guy loses, and the hero walks off happily into the sunset. Here, the perceived protagonist is killed off-screen, the sheriff and Anton never meet, Anton escapes the car crash alive, and Sheriff Bella is left contemplating his dreams and seemingly unhappy retirement. This ending probably left a lot of viewers feeling uneasy after the film. Most people feel that when someone does something bad, they'll be punished, or anyone who's ultimately good will be rewarded. The reality of our world is that unfortunately sometimes the opposite. Bad people aren't always punished, and good people aren't always rewarded. There are some deep topics in this film about morality, ethics, fate, chance, free will, changing times, and you can discuss these things of No Country for All Men for ages. It's a rich, multifaceted film that audiences should continue to discuss for years and years ahead. This film offers so much for the audience to chew on, and I'm lapping up everything it has to offer. This is one of the best out there, and it most certainly gets in a... Amazing. Amazing. Incredible. Outstanding. From me. I was the best because the crowd loved me. All right, where does this film fall for you in your rankings, Endo? All right, let's move it up to... Hmm, where should we start? Let's start at the number three spot between No Country for All Men and Your Name, because it's better than Prestige. I feel like No Country for All Men has a lot more to offer in terms of discussion after the film. Like, Coen Brothers have... Really put in a there's great. A, there's a lot to discuss with your name. Exactly, and that's why it's an amazing film for me too. But I feel like your, I feel like No Country for Old Men is overall a better film, so it goes higher than that for me. So is it better than Die Hard? Hold on, what's your number one film? Die Hard. Wow. So is it going to hit number two or number one? Jeez, I got to tell you, there's there's so much to offer with this film. They are both enjoyable as fuck. This has some of the most nerve-wracking, tenacious scenes I've ever tenchous. seen. Tenacious. I like it. This is a better movie than Die Hard for me. This is my new number one. That is a tenacious take from you there, Hendo. I don't think that applies. <laughs> I don't think tenacious ever applies. <laughs> <coughs> All right, Dean, where does this sit for you? Okay. For me, it's better than Django Unchained. Okay, yep. Okay, and for me, it does come down to, is it better than your name? And I have to say it is. I just feel like this film 
is darker. It's it's more real. You can watch it and get a lot more out of it. Not to take anything away from your name, but I just feel like this film has a lot more that I'm going to remember going forward, that I'm going to think about again in a week or two, whereas with your name, I might not necessarily. Yep. So it's not better than Die Hard. So I'll, I'll put it at number three out of nine for me. Fair enough. It's a good spot. We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is. And this could be it. Oh. Okay, it's just the one review this week. It's, uh, who's it from, Dean? Wouldn't be my brother, Shane, would it? Yes, it is. Uh, He probably gives it one star. All right, what do we got? Everyone loves this movie. It's widely acclaimed. You never hear much criticism about it. Upon the very opening of the film, I'm caught off guard again just how captivating it is. There's a level of understatement to everything that proceeds, a restraint of knowing more than what the film is showing on screen. Most films overplay their hands. They bluff. Pretend to be something else, etc. No country underplays for much of the runtime, then throws in its hand at the final card instead of taking the pot. Because as surprised as I am how good this film is at the beginning, I am again surprised how quickly things run out of gas in the final act. The acting in this film is tremendous, even better than the unique, interesting characters they've been assigned to portray. So what's the best thing about this movie? A lot of people will say Javier Bardem. I think it's Sugar versus Llewellyn. Good versus evil. Light versus dark. The supporting cast is also great. That be including Woody Harrelson and Tommy Lee Jones. The problem occurs when the film is taken out of Llewellyn's hands and no longer becomes his story. Up until that point, we are with him the entire way. We want to see him get the best of Sugar, who is seemingly invincible. The underdog must overcome. But we don't get that in the end. We get Tommy Lee Jones trying to make out he was the hero of the film, and a hero that doesn't even do anything but survive. The title is almost forced upon the film as they try and make out that the sheriff's point of view is the one that encompasses all, that Llewellyn was supporting the sheriff's account. And that's why this film has never been a perfect 10 for me. Of course, everything up until the end is amazing, and to be fair, I still like the end. It's just not the ending it should have had. When Shigur is standing behind Llewellyn's hotel door, both characters in silence, waiting for the other to make a move. The tension is so extreme. It's the best part of the film. Couldn't agree with you more there, Shane. And in a way, the film fails in this regard because they should have saved the best part for the end. Hmm. Thanks for that, Shane. Yeah, thanks for that, Shane. Great review. We also got a question from the I Seen That podcast at I Seen That Pod. They said, do you also get this confused with There Will Be Blood? Two movies shot similarly with titles that are not specific enough that came out around the same time. I may never know which is which. Dean? Uh, Personally, no, I don't because these are two of my favorite movies. And yeah, no, I don't. No, I feel like when you have two fantastic movies... They're gonna be. They're, you're gonna always tell the difference between them. Things like, say, Dante's Peak and, and Volcano. You know, sometimes you might get them confused because they're not good films. Or Deep Impact and that other one. What is the other one? <laughs> oh my god, I got a memory blank. What is the other one to Deep Impact? Armageddon. Holy shit. Armageddon. How, yeah. did, I, how did I forget Armageddon over Deep Impact? I don't know. Oh my god. Uh, so yeah, to answer your question, guys, no, uh, we both love both of these movies very much, and we can tell the difference between them. But thanks for the question. Thank you. Also, just want to give a quick shout out to my cousin Rhiannon. She did ask if I would do that, so hi out there to Rhiannon. So we need to settle our best Coen Brothers tournament bracket. Dean, our March Madness. We had sixteen of the Coen Brothers films. 
Battle each of other. Best. Yeah, battle it out. Had some surprising results in there. Yeah, we... Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think the only uh, upsets we had was Burn After Reading beat Oh Brother We're Out There in the first round. What about Hudsucker? Hudsucker Proxy beat Miller's Crossing in the first round. They were very close, both of those. A 43-57 to 57 and a 46-54. to 54. That almost broke our bracket, our brackets, but I think the big bracket breaker was Dean picking No Country for All Men to take the whole thing down, and it got knocked out in the final four, so it didn't even make the finals, which uh, cost you the win in the end, as I basically smashed it. I only had three wrong the entire way, because in the end, in the final battle of the Big Lebowski versus Fargo, Fargo took it down with a 58% to 42%, which was my winner for the whole tournament, and that shipped me a 12-9 to 9 victory, and I get to pick another movie for Dean to watch this week. What's it going to be? Well, in keeping with the spirit of the Coen brothers here and the fact that I haven't seen too many of these films, let's go with a film that I'm interested in hearing about. And I'm going to pick the surprise film that went pretty far based off its seed. I'm going to go Burn After Reading. Very good. I haven't seen that. All right. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that one. You shall get them next week, my friend, Alfredo Hendo. <laughs> I'll stop. So... What's next? All right, Dean, let's find out what movie we're doing next week. Why don't you hit that random number generator button? Here we go. 143. 143. We have another Best Picture winner. Really? We have A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yes, it will. All right, we're not going to do a poll this week in regards to anything relating to A Beautiful Mind. We'll just keep that poll up about whether or not Anton killed the accountant, which he most certainly did. But we'll put up a, a poll next week, uh, which will go back to drafting a, a couple of movies each based off a theme on the next week's movie that we pick. So that's going to do it for our breakdown of No Country for All Men. Stick around because we're going to be talking about what else we've been watching this week. But that's going to do it. Hey guys, Matt here. Ever notice we use the hashtag Potter and Family? See, Potter and Family is a community of podcasts that support each other and promote each other. Here's the cool part. Now, you listeners can search for hashtag Potter and Family and connect to hundreds of podcasts. So many, you're guaranteed to find something you like. Or if you don't want to do the searching yourself, you can follow at Potter and Family on Twitter and let them retweet shows to you. So what are you waiting for? Go find some podcasts to listen to, you lazy bastards. As always, this is now entering into the spoiler-free zone. So, from here on in, we will not be spoiling any of the movies we're now talking about when we talk about what we've watched this week. So, feel free to listen if you haven't heard them for our thoughts. Oh, Dean, how many did you see this week? Hold on, I need to get my calculator out. I've seen four other movies okay. this week. I saw nine. Well, you didn't work all week. I had work all week. I don't think that's a bad effort. Sure. Could be better. It's possible. <laughs> All right, so I'll start off for a little bit here. My number nine film for the week is Early Man. It's a... Is that animated? It's the animated claymation type one, like the Wallace and Gromit style. Oh, I wouldn't have mind seeing that. Yeah, it's it's overall, it's pretty lame. Is there time travel in it? No. There body swapping in it? No. <laughs> is there any good voice actors? None that you would notice. There's actually Eddie Redmayne... As the the main person, I think, and then there's Tom Hiddleston who has this. I think he's got a weird accent in it, and uh, no, um, probably not. Oh, and um, what's her face? Uh, Kelly McDonald. No, 
No, um, Macy Williams is in it too. Those are probably the three big standouts. It's um, it's not funny. It tries to be. It's I laughed once. Is it aimed film. at very young children? I think so. There's a there's the one. Did you watch it with I, your kids? Yeah. Because they like it? I think so. They love anything like you this. You didn't ask? Well, they always talk about how good every movie they see is. You should start bringing in their reviews. There was one. The only thing I laughed at was a joke where... Oh, don't ruin it for me. They're at a, they're at a stand and some woman buys sliced bread. And it must be the newest thing in town because she goes, Oh, this is the best thing since... Well, anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only time I laugh. That's gold. I, the whole was, movie's like that. There was another one I eye-rolled at where, let's say, the pig is doing something. And, and one of the commentators is like, oh, they're being a bit rash here. And then he goes, get it, rasher, because he's made of bacon. I'm like, you didn't have to explain the joke. It would have been funnier if you didn't say that. Overall, I think that Wallace and Gromit movies and that are heaps better than this. It's very forgettable. Uh, I would skip it. I saw a Wallace and Gromit movie at the cinemas once. I think there was, is there a were-rabbit? Yeah, the were-rabbit. Yeah, I saw that one. It's really not my thing, to be honest. And my next film I saw was... The Academy Award winner for last year's Best Foreign Film was A Fantastic Woman. Not fantastic. It wasn't. Wow. I, I just, I didn't like it. I I just, I found it, overall, it was it was just boring. I didn't like it. I just, I was looking at the time a lot, going, okay, what, what's going to happen? It just, nothing was special about it. Like, it obviously delves into the issues that trans people have in life, but I felt like the people that were, you know, that it was negatively portraying in here. They were, they were either the, they were aggressive-aggressive or they were passive-aggressive. There was no one in the middle here. And I felt like the main lead, she was getting praise for, you know, a great performance. And I didn't think she was anything special. It was, there was nothing good there. I just, I didn't really see it. I Not your cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. There was nothing really going on with the film. And I... I I found it quite boring. Um, so we're still in not, re- not recommend here. Uh, my next film is called Forever My Girl. <laughs> oh, <damn. laughs> Stop yawning. Yep. Was it good? No. Uh, it's it's a it's harmless. Like there's nothing. Is it 2018 film? Yeah, it is. It's it's not it's not horrible. There's nothing really bad about it per se. But it's just it's there's nothing over like nothing great about it. Like that you could pinpoint and say yeah it's it's definitely a great movie. There's a lot of country music in it it's very it's it's, it's about the south like uh, country people don't they know we prefer no country <laughs> <laughs> that's two for you this week <laughs> I'm on fire you know like they they really go in hard with the country like they talk about oh that's Blake Shelton on the phone like, oh okay we get it that this is a country film we don't mm. need to mention this fucking Blake Shelton guy all the time I felt the the love story was was good it was good but I felt that the the child in it was so annoying she talked like it was a script. Like like the dialogue she had was written by an adult. Didn't talk like a child would. And it, it it started to irritate me. I'm like, you you at this age would not speak the way you speak. How old was she? Eight. And it's just, it's it's agitating. And that's what I found really annoying about the film. Hmm. So, nah, it, it's a pass for me. My next film, which is number six, is Tomb Raider. I thought this was very basic there's no real characters in this film. They're all very transparent. I thought Alicia Vikander was fine, but the the action is very subpar. It's so CGI. It looked like... And, and when the CGI's there, it seriously looks so fake. Mm. I heard a lot of people saying that, oh, it's good when 
when it treats the movie like it's part, like it's the video game, like they do puzzles and that. I think I saw one puzzle when they're in the tomb, when they're raiding the tomb, which is hard. There's hardly any of that as well. Hmm. That's blink and you miss it. And I thought there was just, there was one puzzle that I saw and I was like, okay, surely there's more. No, there's not. Unless I missed it. I don't know. I was bored as is, fuck. Is that what you look for in your action films? More puzzles? Well, I heard that this was going to be like the video game. Oh, you heard? I heard I, from people who had seen it. So they were wrong. And I thought the ending was laughable. Like, it's, it's almost as bad as Independence Day. The oh. second one. The second Independence Day. Which I haven't seen. I thought, I mean, what I don't understand is when you have a perfect film in Tomb Raider 1, why would you even bother trying to reboot it? You're never going to get better than what that. What the fuck are you talking this film tries so hard to set up a sequel it's unbearable like are you kidding me just deal with this movie and they couldn't even do that right pass on this one pass pass alright my next film my number 5 film is Den of Thieves wow yeah I mean genuinely surprised by your list right now what did you know what that I that they're so low or that I saw these films this is essentially a ripoff of Heat like just oh that movie just go watch Heat how good's Heat though Heat I can't wait to get to that. Yeah, yeah I mean it's an it's an action film. It's it's a Gerard Butler action film, <laughs> and he he got he's definitely put he put the pounds on for this. He's very schlubby in this film. It's I think it's a bit too long. There there's character development in this that feels really forced. Like they put those scenes in there to like hey these these people have depth and it doesn't feel earned. And and aside from that, there's arcs in this film that don't even that don't get resolved. Like Gerard Butler with his um his wife and his kid and that, that starts to go places and then he never, and then that's it. Like, it doesn't come back. I'm like, well, what, what happened? Mm. Well, I don't get it. And it, obviously, it's a knockoff of movies like Heat and The Usual Suspects. These these films, which are fantastic, it really feels like it's a knockoff of them. It's not a completely awful film because it's it's mirroring Heat and Usual Suspects. I mean, how could it be? There's some good action, but it, there's so many more better action films out there. So it's a, it's a pass from me, yet again. We had some comments on Twitter about Den of Thieves here. We had one from the ADO Radio podcast, at ADO Radio Zero, said... Gerard Butler's Fat Fingers and Dumb Rings. <laughs> we also have one from Language of Bromance Podcast at Language of Bro said, was a bit different from what I thought it'd be. Went in thinking it'd be a procedural type cop movie, but got something different and gritty. Fair enough. I'm going to jump in now with my worst film I saw. Yes. Last week. No surprises to anyone here. Fifty Shades Freed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I made you watch that. That little gem I had to watch. There's really nothing I can say about this thing that hasn't already been said before. It's terrible. The plot is stupid. Probably the worst thing about this film is the plot. And that's saying something. It's so messy and self-indulgent. The acting is career-destroying from everyone. The writing is embarrassingly bad. The sex scenes are corny and lack any chemistry whatsoever. And the so-called villain is even worse than the leads. I've wasted too much time already talking about this rubbish. Obviously, don't watch it. Okay. Or maybe I was just lost because I hadn't seen the second one. <laughs> maybe. Okay, so that was your fourth. Or your was last. My, it was my fourth. My number four, which is actually still in the not recommend. I saw more not recommends this week than recommends. And my number one is actually only three and a half. My number four is You Were Never Really Here. This is a new film that's just come out, starring Joaquin Phoenix. And, I don't know, it felt kind of confusing to me throughout the whole thing. I got a little lost in what was going on. Yeah, it's 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 brutal in like an old boy kind of way. But 
there were definitely like dream sequences and bits and pieces here and that I'm like, I got very lost. Uh, I put it at this point in the list because it's it's just shy of a recommend because I feel like if I watch it again, I might understand it a bit more and it could move into a good film. But at this point, from watching it the first time, I got very confused as to what was happening. The ending was a bit weird. I, I, I think that the acting was really good. Joaquin Phoenix is, once again, he's fantastic as an actor in general. And he really holds this film. Mm. It just tends to be in a lot of bad movies. Yeah, but I feel like this has the merits to not be a bad film. And I feel like this is just my... Obviously, this is just my personal opinion. I real, I feel like a rewatch of this might put this over the edge to a good film. Speaking of bad Joaquin Phoenix films... Inherent Vice. Ah, okay. <laughs> now, this film is an... Oh, it's incoherent. It is so messy, not as messy as Fifty Shades, obviously, but it's all over the place. There's no real um, thread-through plot that you can follow easily. There's so many subplots with subplots and sub-characters who have weird relationships to this person, who somehow know this person, who's related to this person. It is a giant mess. It honestly took me three goes to get through. I, I could not stay awake watching this film which is why it took me so many guys. It is so boring, so hard to follow. I mean, it's set in like hippie 70s. Yeah. There's, it's all about drugs and he's like Joaquin Phoenix is high all the time and it's annoying. It's really, really annoying. It is so, it reminded me so much of The Master as well. Is it like, worse than The Master? No. Okay. No, it's not worse than The Master. I, I, I would maybe in years time watch this again to try as you say about you were never really here i get the sense that there's so much there i just I, i'm not getting it and maybe it'll be better on a rewatch but it's it's hard to get through okay. honestly fair enough so my number three film which is the first film on the recommend side of this is small town crime now do you know about small town crime no so it stars john hawks and Anthony Anderson and Octavia Spencer, and it's about this washed... I wouldn't call him a washed-out cop, but he's a retired cop, through reasons, if you watch the movie, you'll understand, who stumbles across a, a dead body, and he ends up becoming his own private investigator to find out what happened, and he ends up getting entangled in this huge web of, you know, um, I guess drugs and sex and assassins and that sort of stuff. Kind of reminded me of the nice guys, really, but... Less comedic and a bit more violent. Like, there's still comedy in this film, but it's definitely a m lot more violent than The Nice Guys. Like, there's there's scenes... Like, some guy gets sniped in the face and, like, his jaw is hanging off at certain points. It's, it's pretty intense. Hmm. There's, um, there's good work on, like, the detective side of things. Like, you actually see the work that goes through to get to certain points. I thought John Hawkes was really good as the main lead here. He, um... What was the... I was thinking yeah. of the, the wizard guy from Harry Potter who sells Harry his first wand. No, John Hawks is like from... He's from... He's from um, Three, Three Bullboards. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, there's some plot in it that got sidestepped and ignored at certain points that like Den of Thieves just, just got left in the dirt. But it's still an enjoyable, good watch that I would recommend. Okay, my next film, which I would not recommend, which I saw today, is Ready Player One. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Okay. Spielberg's latest film is a corny, 
crowd-friendly film that sacrifices plot and character development for an extravagant spectacle. There are more pop culture references in this movie than you can imagine, but the novelty of seeing characters like Robocop and Freddy Krueger and the likes quickly fades, and I feel Spielberg relies too heavily on this aspect. Ty Sheridan is good as our protagonist, but some of the dialogue he's forced to say is so cringy, it takes you out of the movie. Special shout out though to the shining scenes for not only being amazing and creative, but mainly for making me feel grateful for not taking my kids to this one. Yeah, well, it's the next film on my list, too. I was hoping it's number it would two. Be. Yeah, I mean, this is just like nostalgia. Oh, like, it's... It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And that's what I love about the film. Obviously, this is the best part of the film. It's the focus of it. Like, fa- fantastic visuals at certain points. Like, I had a massive grin on my face most of the time here, what, looking at all these little Easter eggs, trying to pick them all out. I'm not a fanboy geeking out, really, and I'm not, real, I'm not a fanboy about anything, really, but just picking up on all these things that I know about, I was like, this is enjoyable. Like, that shining scene... Oh, it's so good. It's unreal. It came from nowhere. It's the best part of the film, obviously. Like, I thought it was so good. The problem, or one of the problems I had with the film, was that there's a lot of stuff that we can see, yet they explain it to us. Like, it doesn't have faith in the audience who's watching. We don't, like, anyone who knows the references don't need to hear the dialogue. Like, they they walk in and there's the Iron Giant. Like, oh my God, is that the Iron Giant? We know it is. We don't need to say it. And anyone who doesn't isn't going to get it from yeah. the dialogue. Like, yeah. there was too much of that. Have some faith in your audience who, who are going to see this in search of these things. Yeah. I thought Ty Sheridan was fine. Like, no, he was okay. Yeah. Olivia Cook, I thought, was the best part of this film. She was um, the, the best standout here. Actually, I won't say that. Olivia Cook and Mark Rylance, I think, were the best part of this film. Mark Rylance, his character is the most fleshed-out character out of all of them. I think in terms of Ty Sheridan and Olivia Cook and that, their characters aren't anything. I don't get anything from either of those. I yeah. The acting was good from Olivia Cook, but I think the character. Yeah, there's no character yeah. development. But there's you're no. right. Mark Mark Rylance is the best character here. Yeah, and he it took, actually took me a little bit to recognise him. Like, oh, yeah. I was like, man, he looks familiar. Who is it? Oh, it's Mark Rylance. I didn't realise that Simon Pegg was in this film either until I saw him. Like, oh, okay, with an American accent as well, which was good. I didn't realise he could do oh, pull off something yeah. like that. Yeah, and I didn't buy the chemistry from them either, from Ty Sheridan and Olivia Cook. Yeah, and I will say. I had, as soon as the credits rolled and the lights went up, the guy sitting in front of me turned to his kid and said, that is the worst book adaptation I've ever seen. And uh, it made me chuckle. Like, I haven't read the book or anything, but yeah, it's just... Yeah, I felt... It, the, honestly, I was disappointed I felt it. the ending was really bad as well. The ending was terrible. Yeah. So in the end, like, I'm, I'm torn. Like, there's, there's definitely several problems with it and it feels a bit all over the place at times. But the nostalgia got to me. Yeah, I just know. feel like that that wears thin after a while. It's definitely far from a perfect film. Like it's yeah. it's it's a recommend for me, but it's you know this is probably like one of the 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 most lowest recommended films that I would go and watch again just to pick out all the little bits. I probably wouldn't watch the whole film. I'd just go through, wait till it comes out in Blu-ray and get the freeze frame and check out all the little bits and pieces that came out. But other than that, I don't. I think you can. I don't know. Maybe you can skip it. You say to skip it. How good was that shining stuff? <sighs> All right, the music, Dean. The music. I was like, oh. Especially when he's like, I'm going to open this door. I'm like, no. No, it's coming. Don't go in there. We also had a comment here from Screen Fever at Real Screen Fever. Said, haven't seen the movie yet, but the book is a wonderful read. Thanks for that. All right, Dean, what's your number one film of the week? Is it a recommend? 
Yes, it is. Oh, that's good then. At least you got one good one throughout the week. Yeah, Grand Piano. Oh, of course, Grand Piano. I forgot that I gave that to you. Really? Yeah. Grand Piano is written by Damien Chazelle, though not directed, and is about a guy who must perform on stage for an anonymous man who has a gun pointed at him and his wife, barking him instructions in a hidden earpiece. Basically, it's phone booth in a classical concert setting. This movie, like Chazelle's other film, Whiplash, takes a seemingly dry and dull topic like music and ramps up the intensity to 11. Whilst Whiplash did this in a very grounded way that put its characters centre stage, this movie crosses the line of believability for the majority of this film. The plot here is so weak at times, it's hard to look past it. But having said that, it is a thoroughly entertaining movie throughout with solid pacing. I grew up learning piano from a young age, so seeing so many incredible piano pieces being played was truly amazing for me. Elijah Wood is great as usual, but is somewhat let down by a very campy John Cusack and a wife who brings absolutely nothing to the table. And just quickly, the ending... Could have been improved too. It's great to see where Damien Chazelle started out and generally it's watchable enough film, if only a bit unbelievable. Recommended if you're into music and are an Elijah Wood fan. Fair enough. All right, so my number one film for the week is, again, not a new film. It's an older film. It's nearly 20 years old now. I mean, that's just cheating. No, it's not. It's, uh, it's Big Daddy. I got a six, a five, a jack, a four, and an eight. I win. What do you mean you win? I had a hand just like that before. I didn't win. Because I win. This is bullshit. All right, take it easy, man. Every time different cards, he still wins. I mean, this film, it's, it's not Adam Sandler's greatest film. It's, it's great. I think it's. I think the shtick here is starting, is starting to come into the movies. Mm. Some of the jokes are incredibly outdated now. Are they? <laughs> but still, like, I don't think I've actually seen it since I've had children. So watching it now with you know two daughters and seeing and seeing that chemistry between Adam Sandler and with Sonny and you see them build their relationship and once he realizes that he you know he he wants this kid and and the emotion that comes through that it, it is touching and you know it's I think that's the obviously the best part of this film that some of the humor's fine in it Rob Schneider's actually okay in this film what <laughs> I think he's fine is uh is he better in this or the animal what the fuck kind of question is that that's the worst now that's the worst comparison you could have done Reb Schneider is. <laughs> also, Steve Buscemi is in this as this bum. And I, I put it to you, he has a weirder career than John C. Riley. Look at him in whatever the other f- fucking Adam Sandler film is with the bung eye. Oh, yeah. And in this is And this he's bu- in um, Billy Madison. Yep, exactly. He's in, he t- does these ridiculous comedic roles. But then he gets in and does Fargo. And he does even The Death of Stalin, like which is which is probably... A smarter comedy uh, out of all these. Smart, and then he does on, board, smarter than Billy, Boardwalk Billy Empire. And then he goes and does The Sopranos and all these other films. And then he goes and does these terrible nothing roles. It's weird. I love Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Reservoir Dogs. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm like, I'm thinking, what's my favourite Buscemi movie? Yeah, it's yeah, Reservoir so Big, Dogs. Big Daddy is my number one film of the week. Okay. We also had a comment here from Jimbo Getup. He's the host of the Pilots and Petards podcast. Go ahead and check them out. He's at Jimbo Getup. says, I love Big Daddy. Not my favorite Sandler movie, but lots of high points. Hashtag old balls, the food delivery guy, this bullshit. <laughs> Good job. And that's going to do it for this week. So another episode in the books. Another episode in the books. Heading into number 10 coming up. Episode number 10. No doubt it will be a beautiful episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, what a way to end it. 
All right, guys. We will see you next week for a beautiful mind. Bye. Bye. Bye.